behind. This is week two, and we need to somehow make up one week in the next 48. So we're we're going to be uh, going going quickly. Um, three quick things uh, to pray about before we get going in Romans, and there is so much uh, to cover again today. Um, couldn't be more excited about, and thank you so much for investing in God's Word and God's people. Um, Haley, give us a quick update. We're excited. Grant's thinking Tuesday. We've got um, Leah pulling the medical card saying Friday. Have eight days till the due date. Eight days till the due date. Do we have a commitment from you on which day, or is this, we just have a commitment in general? As long as we have a general commitment, I think that's good. Yep. Grant, any word? No. Just waiting patiently. Yes. So excited. Fatherhood staring you down. Oh yeah. So excited about that. And uh, um, Josh, would you pray for Grant and Haley just for starters? We'll talk about the other two things, and then we'll get yeah. good after it. Father, thank you for this day, giving us a chance to study Romans. Thank you for Grant and Haley and for their daughter on the way. Lord, I pray that uh, the birth would go smoothly and that you would help them to prepare in these last few days for the birth. And I pray that you'd be with them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You might have uh, seen this in um, uh, the group me, but Alan's dad went to heaven. Uh, he, um Mixing up yesterday. That's right. Okay. So I uh, don't know on the arrangements and that kind of thing yet, but uh, that was really what he was asking us to pray toward the end, especially that last week. He was starting to suffer, and he was saying, just please, Dad wants to be in heaven, and, uh, you know, they're going to miss him, something fierce. And a fantastic man. Josh, I guess you probably knew him maybe longer than I have, but uh, a great man that right now is rejoicing uh, to be with the Lord, something that we're all waiting for and all very excited about. Um, and then thirdly, uh, today, Kaylee Blevins and Karen Schuler are starting a Sunday school class for our young ladies, and uh, uh, like high school age, middle school and high school. And so that's right down the hall in the library. And um, so that's a brand new study start today that we're excited about as well. But Grant, would you pray for those two uh, things and for our Roman study, and then we'll we'll go after it. So especially for Alan and his family and for uh, the girls as they um, go after it today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that we can gather together um, as a local body in person and read your word, open your word, have it in our language and study it to the best of our ability. And Father, I pray that you would illuminate it today as we um, look into your gospel in Romans, that by your spirit, uh, the text would be illuminated to our minds and that we would be able to apply it to our life and live in a way that is pleasing to you. And Father, we also want to ask for Dr. McCannon, for his family, um, that you would strengthen them during this time of grief for the loss of their father. And Father, I ask that you would strengthen Dr. McCannon as he has to deal with uh, likely all of the logistics that go with that as well as the loss of a loved one, Father, that you would strengthen him um, as he leads in this time. And Father, thank you for this new Sunday school that's starting with um, the young women of our church, the middle school and high school age girls, um, that you would be with Kaylee. 
Miss Karen as they teach your word to them that it would impact their lives greatly going forward as they grow into mature women. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good deal. Thank you uh, so much. Don't leave the Sunday school room without a commentary. There are Stodd commentaries, the green guy. Bit more technical, but pretty easy to read, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Look at there already. You approve? Yep. Yep, good. <laughs> and then the, uh, and that was a couple years ago when we did the study. We, um, some people maybe got those. The other one, what's his name, Miss Elizabeth? What's that, the other guy's name? Dan Doriani. Good. And uh, a solid guy wrote on Romans, and this one's a little bit more of, uh, I guess, sermons, you could say, and uh, probably a bit more devotional. So whichever one you kind of you think would suit you, and uh, if you're married, you can both grab one, and then you have one of both, okay? So, uh, but um, there's, there's a few of them, and definitely we can get more, so please grab one on your way, on your way out if you would. Um, wow, last two weeks ago, before we had the blizzard, we uh, <laughs> needed to talk about and did talk about one to seven. We were joshless at this point, but... Um, Probably better off. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. We're excited about today, haven't you? Um, and that was an introduction and really in, uh, kind of an explanation of the gospel or where he was focused on that. Um, today we're moving in to um, verses 8 to 17, and that's a bit ambitious. Josh, would you read 8 to 17, and then we'll start working through them. Sure. So starting in verse 8, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Good deal, Grant. Could you start us and say, what do you see in, and we'll save 16 and 17 a little bit, the theme um, for a second, the theme of the whole book, really, Um that righteousness from God and the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. That would be the theme. But before we get there, from 8 to 15, anything uh, strike you, Grant, or what's most intriguing out of that group for us? Uh, maybe come back to me on that one. Yeah, Josh? You know, when I was reading this, one thing that kind of struck me off the bat is that their faith was proclaimed in all the world, verse 8. And, you know, verses 1 through 7, you kind of have Paul's 
uh, stereotypical introduction. And then in verse 8, he gets a lot more personal. He talks about his travel plans. And I think there's a couple things here from verse 8 that stand out was um, the quality of their faith. It was proclaimed in all the world. And it kind of got me thinking, Jerry, what were the markers of this faith? Like what made it so that it was proclaimed in all of the world? And I think there are some clues given throughout the rest of the letter. Um, one of them in verse or chapter 15, verse 14, uh, Paul makes a comment about their uh, faith. He says, I, am, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So that could have been something that was known. Um, also, their obedience in chapter 16, verse 19. I think this was probably a key marker of their faith that was known in all the world. He says, for your obedience, this is chapter 16, verse 19. He says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So I think that was one thing that jumped at me off the bat and um, was, was good application, too, because it made me think, is my faith like this? Am I obedient? Um, and then those descriptors in 15, 14, filled with goodness and those kinds of things. <clears throat> That's good. You know, uh, we had invited Savannah and Yap, who are newly engaged, and uh, they were going to come before they had to fly back to Mexico to, to finish their uh, missionary training. And they were going to talk about kind of Paul. This is sort of a missionary passage here. And we'll get to more of it in chapter 10 in Romans, certainly. But where if while we were in 15 and 16, Josh, it reminded me of verse 20. Look what, and maybe I'll start in verse uh, 19 by the power and sight and wonders of the power of the Spirit of God, 15, 19, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to, um, oh, look, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. And that's their desire. Yap and uh, Savannah, um, their desire is to go reach people that have never heard the gospel. And so we see this is Paul's desire. He is going to people, and this church in Rome is laced with both Jews and Gentiles, the Gentiles who had heard the gospel, the Jews who had heard the gospel, and the Gentiles who had not um, before this. And so... That's that's Paul's desire. Grant, is there something um, that you want to jump in with there? He thanks God for them all, and then he prays for them. He longs to see them, and then he tells them why he hasn't had a chance to, to visit them. That's so far where, where you're at, um, kind of through verse 13 there. Yeah, I don't really have a lot on this other than um, that he, this is where we're confirmed that he hasn't yet visited them. So yep. he, hasn't, he hasn't yet met them, that he's without ceasing in prayer so that he can go to them. And then he gives the reason why, so that um, I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then explains what that is. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And Josh, you had some thoughts on that with the 
uh, necessity and benefit of being strengthened by uh, other believers, by their faith and our faith, strengthening one another. Yeah, I, I do think in the Christian life that is so important, to be mutually encouraged and strengthened by each other's faith. And you see it here with Paul. Um, as I was studying this week, I realized Paul had never met these guys before. He didn't even know them. But yet he's praying for them without ceasing. And I think, you know, we would do well to pray for our own church without ceasing, but not to mention all of the churches. Paul is praying for this church that he's never met. Um, <clears throat> I think I'll read that quote about the importance of um, sharing spiritual truths with others. Uh, this is what Charles Spurgeon said, Christians grow rich by exchange of spiritual commodities. And I'm afraid some Christians are very poor because they do not engage with spiritual bartering with one another. Hmm. For when we blend our mutual faith, we are comforted together. Each believer grows stronger as he cheers his brother in the Lord. And so this was Paul's aim. He wanted to engage in the spiritual bartering to build them up in the faith, to um, continue his ministry of teaching. Uh, and I think that's so important for the Christian life for us to keep doing this with each other. Yeah. I want to hear ideas because some I don't think we're accidentally going to uh, encourage each other very often. It probably needs to be purposeful. Some people that have the gift of encouragement, that might just be pretty natural for them. The rest of us probably really need to be purposeful about it, a little bit proactive in doing it. So I would like to hear to, for you what really is mutually encouraging. I can say this, and this is speaking as a very old man. When I see young people, like so many of y'all, Carter, you're a fantastic example of this to me. When I see Carter love the Lord Jesus, growing, being sanctified, there is nothing more encouraging to me than that. That just, we've got folks at school that are coming to love and know Christ. That just, that tops the cake. I don't. I, I'm over thrilled by that, and I cannot. I, that is so encouraging. It makes you just want to share the gospel with everybody and disciple. Josh, that's your life to just continue to disciple folks because you see them grow and you you see them thrive. What's mutually encouraging? And the reason that we would want to hear this is so that we could purposely be this to others. What do you think? Throw out some things. Okay. Like just if you're reading the word and you learn something new and you see some uh, aspect of God's attributes you didn't see before. I mean, it was right there all along, but we just don't see it all the time. Good. But send it to somebody, mm -hmm. right? Good deal. We've got that World Wide Web. We got a couple options now that we didn't have it in the 1800s. <laughs> yep. Good. Sharing each other's blessings that you see from Scripture in your own life. What else? What's mutually encouraging to you? I think praying with other believers is a great way to encourage each other and bear each other's burdens. Yes. Praying for each other. Good. Yeah. Over the phone, if you need to, getting together to pray. Yeah, I know Jerry had a heart to, to do that, you know, for, for folks needs that we have but just for each other good what else 
What's mutually encouraging to you guys? That I read in one of the commentaries, it was pretty interesting, said they really uh, appreciated Paul's humility here. He wasn't going to them like, I have a bunch to offer you guys. I'm probably not going to get much from you, though, because you're a little bit lower down the um, spiritual ladder. No, he was like, when you go, and you've experienced this, as you share Christ with people, you are more encouraged than they are in a lot of ways. That's like a, um, a Philemon 7. As you share the gospel, you will be more thrilled than they are, probably. What's mutually encouraging? Yeah, I, when thinking about Paul, probably the consummate theologian of the New Testament. I mean, he wrote more of the New Testament, I think 13 letters. There was not a whole lot that he had yet to learn, but yet he's going to the church at Rome eager to be mutually encouraged by their faith. I think it's a good reminder that we've never really kind of cornered the market on theological knowledge. If Paul has, if he's eager to learn from others, I think there's, uh, we'll always have more to grow and learn in. Um, you know, when I've done some counseling in the past year, that's one of the things I'm doing with people is um, some of the homework that I'll give them is for them, especially if they're not, uh, if they're a member at another local church, is to come back with some highlights from the sermon. And it's always a really fun time of, you know, I'll share what I'm learning here in Sunday school and at church, and they're sharing what they're learning. And it helps to cultivate that relationship and mutual upbuilding as we're trading spiritual truths with one another. And I just find that to be um, really helpful in the Christian life and fighting sin. That's great. Grant? Yep. So along that same vein, um, studying the Word with other believers mm-hmm. I have found to be very encouraging, not only because, you know, instead of talking about the weather and, like, mundane trivialities, you're talking about Christ, which is refreshing to your soul, but also, um, I find even studying Romans there, there are some people from church, and they see things differently than I do. Like certain words stick out to them more, so you really get a much richer understanding of what yes. you're studying because you've got so many different perspectives. Yes, good deal. Studying the word together, I think that's so good. And I think, don't you think that because God's word is an inexhaustible source of wise counsel, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We're not going to get 1% of what's here in Romans. So that other 99 we're after. And other people are going to get it because the same Holy Spirit is opening up the word to them, to my sixth graders, as he is to me. And so there's so much to learn from no matter who it is. Grant, anything that uh, it's mutually encouraging to you? I think um, y'all have highlighted many of the things that are mutually encouraging, but one for me is when um, either an older saint in the local church, I think of like Papa Fred or even young younger saints that have gone through uh, some sort of trial and they have suffered well, their faith has endured, uh, and they're able to come through that and describe God's faithfulness to them and his provision to them spiritually within a trial. That can be some of the most powerful, encouraging stuff with Papa Fred talking about the loss of some of his loved ones, his yeah. brother, and stuff like that, or with you know loss of children or, or whatever it is, uh, believers in our local church that are able to come through that and suffer well, and you see their faith preserved through that suffering, even strengthened through that suffering. 
that is encouragement for facing future trials with them. Uh, if it's, you know, say my time for the trial that's to come or um, even just discussing it with them, it just builds you builds you up. That's something for me, at least. No, I love it. That's really good. Sharing the trials and how God's grace is sufficient. Because that's the promise. It will be. And we'll get more perseverance and character and hope and become more mature and complete in Christ. We get to five good things for, for the one trial that we're suffering. They're worth it for the believer. And so, man, Grant, that's, that's really good. I don't want to embarrass Carter, but this was a great example of this right here in Romans 1.12. Dr. Schaefer, you know Dr. Schaefer, at, uh, he's coming to visit his grandkids. This is one brilliant man. Grant, could you just, how would you describe Dr. Schaefer? He's godly, been all across the world proclaiming the gospel, talking science, well, in his 70s, I guess. I, I think so. Probably, and well advanced in sanctification. Yeah, I don't know him personally, but I do know that he's top of his field in computational chemistry, but he's always eager to talk spiritual things. Uh, yeah, he's, whatever that kind of chemistry that Grant just said, <laughs> he's really good at that. But he is way, way, way more excited about the gospel. Yeah. The only reason that he likes chemistry is that that'll give him a platform to go to Yugoslavia or China or somewhere to start with chemistry and finish with the gospel. And that is what he is committed to do. So he's in these places where no one else can be because he knows the science. This week, he comes to see his grandkids at school, and he's telling me about how Carter mutually encouraged him in the C.S. Lewis class. And I love that. I love that. Here's a man who's been sanctified for 50-some years, he's so godly. He's talked about the gospel as more than maybe the most of us combined. And he's learning and being mutually encouraged by Carter, and he talks about that. And so that was mutually encouraging to me to hear how Carter is impacting Dr. Schaefer and discipling Dr. Schaefer on the side. Right, Carter? Is that the <laughs> And so it's just such a great thing how that works. Um, look at verse, and Josh, you said something that was really insightful here. Nobody has a monopoly on the gospel, right? And boy, you see Paul thinking like that. And there's, these were pointed out by Stott, and I love this. And ever since we've seen it about three years ago, I haven't been able to shake this. Verse 14, 15, and 16 about the gospel. First of all, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So he is obligated to share the gospel. Why are we obligated? He used that word. That's a strong word. Why? Throw out some... Why, do, why are we obligated to share the gospel? It's not optional. Why would that be true? Yeah. Good. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that reminds me, because if we are truly loving people, look real fast at an ob There's a couple other places in Romans, I think, that it's mentioned. Look at 13, 13, 8. 13, 8. I think this is what you're saying. If we love somebody, we will share the gospel with them. Owe no one anything except to love each other. We, we owe that. Owe one another 
no owe no one to anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has my page is crinkled. Fulfilled the law. Fulfilled the law. And so that's yeah, that's and you know, um that's that's so good. Why else? It glorifies God. Good. Brings glory to God. It's the good. Yeah, we're ambassadors of Christ. So good. We're bad. That's what we're about. That's our job. Hey, and listen, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? If our mouth is never speaking of the gospel, what does that show about our heart? It's not very thrilling to us. I talk about football. I talk about my family. I talk about Josh. I talk about a lot of things because... That's, that's who I love and what I love. If I'm not talking about the gospel, I probably need to do some spiritual inventory and to say, what do I really, what's really top priority here in, in, in what, what we think? So he's obligated, but look at what else in verse 15. He is not just obligated to share the gospel, he is eager to share the gospel. He's eager to share the gospel, verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's both obligated and eager. What keeps us from being eager, would you say? Fear of man. Yeah. That was kind of what you were leaning toward to. Yeah, fear of man. I agree. Galatians 1.10. Are we fearing man or are we fearing God? If we're fearing man, we're no longer serving the Christ. Now, I'm... A hypocrite saying that, I am terrified of man. And so that's not a good thing. Good. What else? What keeps us from being a little more eager than we than we should be, than we are? Persecution. Good. Yep. Can, there can be some persecution there. Yep. If you're at the end of Matthew 5, or in the middle of Matthew 5, after uh, the Beatitudes, blessed are we when we're persecuted. But we don't see it like that sometimes. What could else could keep us from being eager? Feeling ill-equipped to handle the Yeah, right. If we're ill-equipped to handle it. Good. You know when I'm not eager, it's when I'm really not meditating on the word day and night. If I grow stale spiritually, I'm not very eager to share it. But if I'm meditating on it, it becomes so thrilling that I can't help but tell somebody. And I think that's a huge part of it. Obligated, we're obligated in verse 14, we're eager in verse 15, and we're not ashamed of the gospel. Look at here, this is where we get kind of to the theme, and this is really the meat of the matter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes First for the Jew and and also for the Greek. Okay? So it, as we get to the theme, and I'll share something that Boyce shares, and then I want to ask Josh to help us to say, what is this theme of righteousness? This is a little bit of a, a, a slippery uh, topic to get a hold of, I think. And uh, from what I read for commentators, we're not the only ones who are struggling to get a real grasp on it. This is a 
a, a little bit of a, a thought provoker, but Boyce says there's three sentences that sum up the theme. Number one, this righteousness from God is the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, remember the only righteousness we have is unrighteousness. And he is going to convince us of that until about March, right? We're going to go through that and go through that and go through that where we're finally looking like, when do we get to the good news? Because starting next week, Lord willing, from 118 to 320 is bad news after more bad news after more bad news. It is whew, in several weeks. Number two, God offers this righteousness of Jesus Christ freely apart from any need to work for it on our part. And you got to say, that is a good thing. Because if we had to work for it, we couldn't get it. Because our most righteous act is like filthy rags. So that's not going to get us anywhere. Number three, faith is the channel by which sinners receive Christ's righteousness. It's only through faith and it's only through Christ. And so this righteousness from God is the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. God offers this righteousness of Christ freely, apart from any need to work for it on our part. And faith is a channel by which sinners receive Christ's righteousness. Josh, help us grasp what is this righteousness that will show up again and again and it's such a theme to the book of Romans. It is a huge theme. I want to maybe just go back just a little bit and then kind of work into it. But 16 and 17 are really, Sinclair Ferguson calls it the gateway into the entire letter. And so these, this idea of the righteousness of God or, you know, take a step back, the idea of righteousness is a huge topic throughout the Old and New Testaments. But um, key to understanding that is to see that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because, one, it's the power of God for salvation, which is revealed through the righteousness of God. So there's a really key connection there. Paul's not ashamed. He's under obligation. He's eager, and he's unashamed because it's the power of God for salvation. And that salvation, that power of God, is the righteousness of God revealed. Um, so... Jerry, could we just pause and think about like why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel? I think one of the mm -hmm. other things you mentioned meditating on it is important, but also seeing that it, it is the very power of God. The gospel message is the message by which people come to know uh, the Savior, and people are saved from eternal damnation, and it is really good news. And so you hear things today, you know, there may be a current of thought that says, you know, who are Christians to presuppose their beliefs on other cultures or other beliefs? And I think we've got to think critically and clearly about what God's revealed in Scripture in that uh, Paul is under obligation. He's eager because the message is so good. And then he's unashamed because there is divine power in it. There is um, God's hand is behind his gospel and he's working as it is proclaimed. Um, so, uh, and, and then Paul, you know, when he's talking about being unashamed, these are not just empty words. You know, he was whipped, uh, I think, 39 lashes five different times, shipwrecked out to sea. So here's a man who really 
uh, it, he's not just saying these things that he's unashamed. He truly suffered for Christ. And so I think some of the things that we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel for is maybe mockery. You know, you guys mentioned fear of man. And just teasing it out a little bit, maybe fear of losing the approval or loss of a job status or prestige at work. Uh, maybe we want a to be seen a certain way. We fear being labeled wrongly like a bigot or a fundamentalist or a Bible thumper, uh, loony, maybe dangerous or even harmful. I think in our day, um, Christian beliefs, especially in areas of gender and sexuality, people would call them harmful today, but we know that um, <clears throat> God's truth is binding, and so we should not be ashamed of that. Michael Savage says the Bible is considered porn. Hmm. Well, I've never heard that before. Yeah. But we have such an opportunity, don't we? To, to And I think we can convince people with our words and with our lives. That it is that it is not harmful, but it is the power of salvation. The only way to salvation, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But this idea of righteousness. So maybe I can kind of get us going on that, and then our, our great scholar over here to my left will help us out. But the phrase righteousness of God is used in Paul's letters, I think, nine times. And hmm. eight of those occur in Romans. So it's massively important. And there are a couple of different ways the word is used. One of them, I think there's an ethical sense or a sense in how we live in a way that's pleasing to God. We see it in Romans 6. Um, Paul says, present your members as instruments of righteousness. Also in Proverbs 10, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. So we, can, we see it in that ethical sense. Uh, we also see it as an attribute of God, uh, his justice or his judgment or right condemnation on those who don't act in conformity to his character. So an attribute of God and then um, God's actions in keeping with his character. Uh, we see that in Psalm 9-8, God will judge the world in righteousness. Um, he judges the people in uprightness. So there is a way in which it is an attribute of God. I think here in Romans, in 117, in chapter 3, and chapter 10, there is this idea of a believer's status or a, a legal declaration. Uh, we, could, we could translate it a righteousness that is from God, and I believe it is a, a gift that God gives. Um, yeah. Imputed. Imputed. Yeah credited to us even though it's never been ours before until we trust Christ with faith. That's right. Grant? Yeah, this is a you know, huge, huge subject that when I started looking at it the past two weeks, I don't think I realized how big and how central a subject the righteousness of God is, especially in Romans, uh, for church history, why we're Protestants, what the gospel is, you know, it's a huge thing that I, I stepped into, and I'm still not, not, not out of it by any means. I'm still trying to understand it. Um, one thing I would say is if you're interested in it, and there's so many different views on it, it's been attacked in so many different ways, the doctrine of imputation and stuff like that. Um, this book, Faith Alone by Thomas Schreiner, I have not finished reading it, so I cannot recommend it wholeheartedly, but I have read most of it and skimmed through the rest. Um, it's basically a summary of 
the doctrine of faith alone, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And he walks through um, the history, the church history of our understanding of righteousness, what it means, and then also uh, modern day attacks on the doctrine of imputation, maybe the new per- new perspective on Paul by N.T. Wright, mm-hmm. writers like that, who um, don't believe in the doctrine of imputation. So it's very helpful. It's what I've been using. But um, this passage, 117, you know, we need Papa Fred in here because this was Luther's big verse, you know, the gates of paradise for Luther, um, that unlocked the gospel for him was 17. Um, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the question for Luther is what is the righteousness of God that's being revealed? Is it uh, a divine attribute of God's judgment, which is, I believe, what he thought at the time, that God's righteous in judging sinners, which is how it's used in chapter 3 a couple of times, um, and his righteousness for the uh, judgment on the cross for the propitiation of sin? Or is it... Um, the righteousness that is granted to believers from God, his own righteousness, um, him being, it's his righteousness and also the source of it to believers. And that was the change in thinking, uh, you know, very generally saying over a process for Luther that changed for him was it was not um, so much God's character and his divine judgment, but it was his righteousness being given freely to those and it was accessed by faith the big part for him is how's it being revealed from faith for faith or from faith first to last um, and that the righteous shall live by faith and so I think the couple questions that we have to ask is um, what is this righteousness how's it described in Paul is it just a a character trait of God in his just condemnation of those that are unrighteous Um, or is it a transformative righteousness is it a something that is counted to us or is is it is something that's given to us that actually transforms us to become righteous, um, which I believe is the more Catholic understanding of that, uh, and it's coming back in popular today even in Protestant circles. So I think a couple of places. So first, that this righteousness is not just the divine nature of God and his judgment in this verse. It's actually a gift of God. We can go to um, Philippians 3.9. It is a great place to start. Um, for understanding uh, the gift nature of this righteousness. So I'm actually going to start in Philippians 3, 8. Uh, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we see there in this passage a little bit different wording, but Paul describes it more fully that this righteousness is a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ um, and is accessed by faith. So we see that there's a gift nature of this righteousness that Paul is understanding that is given to us from God. And then uh, it's used similarly in chapter 3, Let's see if I can find the verses. Um, Maybe in, yeah, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, that's the um, verb form of righteousness, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so we see there that it's also that the justification, which is the right standing before God, the verb of righteousness, which is the noun, same root word, is given as a gift by grace, and that righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ, also a gift. So we know that this righteousness is not just a divine attribute. It's a gift of God that he freely gives to those through faith. That's how it's accessed. Um, And then with the view that uh, a Shriner summarizes it as a forensic view, as in are we counted righteousness or are we actually made righteous at justification? Uh, Is justification a process or a single-time event in history? And so... Uh, one place that you can go to start with that, that, that one is one I'm, I'm still working on, but chapter 4, we see that we know uh, empirically, or we know um, just through experience that when we become a believer, when God calls us with his effectual call, we were, we're not righteous at that time. We have no righteousness that we can stand in front of God. He calls us in spite of our unrighteousness, and we see that here starting in Uh, Verse 6 of chapter 4, Paul quoting from the Old Testament with David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, okay, maybe go back in 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here we see uh, the righteousness is counted to us. Um, It's a gift from God, but it's also a gift to those who are unrighteous. We're not made righteous at justification. That comes through sanctification. And we see that with David. When his sins were not counted against him, um, the blessings of the one whom God accounts righteous apart from works, we see that David was sinful in this passage. He, he did not have an inherent righteousness of his own, but his sins were forgiven. So we see that um, it's counted to us. It's a forensic term, meaning we are counted like in the courtroom, counted as righteous. It's freely given to us, and we're unrighteous. And then through sanctification is how we're made more into the image of Christ. So I don't know if that entirely was was very clear, but... That's the understanding that I'm starting to have of that. And just like in the courtroom, when the judge pronounces innocent or guilty, he's not making the person guilty of sin or making the person guilty of the crime or making the person innocent or righteous. He's just counting them there. He's declaring them this or that. And so that's what we see here. And I think that's what was unlocked for Luther was righteousness of God, all the right standing that he has, um, freely given to us so that we can stand before him justified in his sight. I think that's maybe the very just 1.1% of what the righteousness of God means. Uh, it's very helpful. Yeah. Josh, anything on there? That, that's so good. That verse 5 that I Grant just read in chapter 4 is so astounding, isn't it? That and to the one who does not work. That is, again, a prerequisite to be righteous to be to have a right standing with God, it cannot be by work. It is a gift from God. The faith is a gift, and the righteousness is a gift, and it only comes from God 
when you were talking mutual under, uh, mutual encouragement, uh, I think you mentioned Papa Fred Grant. If he got 30 calls this week asking about Lutheran righteousness, he would be mutually encouraged. So get his number. I have it. These guys probably have it. Call Papa Fred. That will be 45 minutes that you will not soon forget right there. Uh, I do want to read Luther on this. This is very interesting. This is his, uh, I think this came from uh, maybe Boyce. I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. And both of those are true. But that's not the righteousness of forensic that Grant just helped us with. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is the righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. There at once I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors in the paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. And so you see uh, a huge change there in how that righteousness um, changed him. Luther's mentor, uh, Stalpitz, and I have never heard of that guy, told him, why do you torment, this is before he was a believer, why do you torment yourself with all these speculations and these high thoughts? Look at the wounds of Jesus Christ. Look to the blood that he shed for you. It is there at the grace of God will appear to you instead of torturing yourselves on account of your sins. Throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms. Trust in him, in the righteousness of his life, in the atonement of his death. This reminded me of Scott when I was reading this. I thought Scott would tell us to do just this. Do not shrink back. God is not angry with you. Now that phrase is interesting because we're going to come to the wrath of God here in three weeks where there is a wrath. There's no doubt about it. But this man told him, it is you who are angry with God. And that's what Sproul says. Sproul says it isn't that. We're going to see this next week when we're looking at general revelation. People don't not believe in God. People know that there's a God. They just don't like him. They hate him. And that's kind of a uh, uh, infomercial for what's coming. Um, but he says, it's not ang God's not angry with you. It's you who are angry with God. Listen to the Son of God. And so I just want to close this with just eight quick things. I love these lists. This came from, um, I think, Boyce. And I think he might have got it from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. But what are eight reasons to not be ashamed of the gospel because this is, and Josh touched on these, but this is how this closes, that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first for the Jew and uh, then also for the Greek. So it's the gospel is the good news. Number two, it's the way of salvation. Number three, it's God's way of salvation. 
Number four, and these all come from these two powerful verses. It is the power of God. Number five, it's the gospel for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Number six, it's salvation revealed to sinners. Sinners are the only ones. And by not working, but by trusting Christ, by putting our faith in Christ, is the way to have a right standing with him. Number seven, it's the righteousness from God. And number eight, by faith from first to last. It's by faith from first to last. Um, let me pray for us. Father, I'm so grateful that we have this just incredible book to meditate on day and night. And Lord, we pray that it would become what we dwell on, what we think about, and what we continually share with others, that they may be mutually encouraged. Lord, give us an eagerness to share the gospel. Help us to never be ashamed of the gospel. I confess constantly battling this being ashamed of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that we would feel the obligation, not as a burden, but as a motivation, that you have given this to us, not so that we can hide it under a bushel, but instead that we would let our light shine before men and that we would talk about what's truly um, important and what's truly thrilling um, to our hearts. Lord, we pray now for Mark as he gets ready uh, to teach your word, and we are so grateful for Ian as he leads us, and Mark as he'll uh, get a chance to teach through Acts. We ask that our hearts would again be warmed by the gospel and we commit this week to you looking forward to um, what we can learn from the coming up passage in Jesus name. Amen. Chapter 1 18 through 25 and Grant could you tell us about the Romans group me how we can get on that thing? Yeah I've added everybody except um, a couple people for some reason I'll have to get with you after I think uh, both the Baileys and Kevin Poe for some reason my phone doesn't recognize that you exist so everybody should be added except for y'all but i'll get with you and, and put you in there okay and hopefully we'll start can kind of put resources on as we find them you can enjoy them and be sure to ask any sort of uh questions shared thoughts let's be mutually encouraging and uh i cannot wait for next week general revelation and the three grim exchanges that people exchange um that's horrifying lord when was he in a week